All right, it's time for Legally Speaking here at CFAX 1070s. We're joined by Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers, looking over the latest news stories of the week to do with legal affairs. Always interesting, especially in this, the age of COVID-19. Good morning, Michael. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you very much for having me. What's on the docket today? Uh, well, I think the first thing is a uh, case that uh, came out uh, dealing with uh, bail or judicial interim release in the context of COVID-19. Uh, there have been a number of cases that have addressed that and sort of how uh, the risk uh, of uh, people who are held in jail waiting for their trial uh, ought to factor in uh, to the uh, decision about whether a person should be uh, allowed to be out of jail waiting for their trial or whether they have to remain in jail waiting. And the starting point uh, for those assessments is that uh, a person has a constitutional right uh, to reasonable bail and not to be detained without just cause. Ordinarily, uh, the burden would be on the uh, Crown, in most cases, uh, to show why it would be necessary to keep somebody in jail, who's presumed to be innocent, of course, uh, before their trial. Uh, and there are three reasons uh, that that can occur. Uh, the first, the primary ground, would be if the Crown could show that the person was not likely to turn up if you let them out, right? Yes. And so you might look at things like, uh, you know, does the person have an address? Have they previously failed to show up in court? Uh, you know, how serious is the charge? Is it the sort of thing a person might flee the jurisdiction to try to avoid or not, right? Yes. Uh, the secondary ground would be a consideration as to whether it's necessary uh, in order to protect the public uh, to sort of keep somebody uh, uh, in custody, uh, and often that's an analysis of whether the person is likely to commit further offenses if released. And so for that, you would look at, you know, does the person have a history, for example, of repeatedly committing offenses, right? Yes, yes. And then if neither of those apply, there's what's called the tertiary ground, which would be a detention uh, if it's necessary to maintain confidence in the administration of justice. And so that might be, for example... Let's say you had a high-profile person who was going nowhere uh, and had no previous record, but where there was an overwhelming case uh, to be made that they committed a serious offense. And the public might say it's outrageous. You know, you've got you know, the mayor of a city on video committing murder. I appreciate they're going to show up, uh, and they have no other uh, record, but you know, we just can't let that person out. There'd be outrage, and that can be a reason as well. Now... Courts have been interpreting all of those things and also taking into account uh, the increased uh, danger posed by COVID-19 for people who are in custody. Uh, and there was a recent decision from the BC Provincial Court that went through that analysis in the case of a man uh, who was, uh, had a really unenviable record. He was somebody who had a long history of property offenses, failing to comply with conditions, breaching court orders, uh, I think he had 14 property offenses, 22 convictions for fraud, impersonation, 13 times he was convicted of breaching conditions, uh, and nine times uh, taking off, flight from police, that kind of thing. Uh -huh. And he was charged with uh, breaking in and stealing mail over on the mainland. And the judge in this case analyzed uh, the sort of factors that I've talked about, uh, but also went through some of the COVID-19 considerations. Uh, and there's some interesting information in that. Um, one of them was that BC Corrections provided information that it has decreased the number of people in custody uh, since the after outbreak of the pandemic uh, from about 2,200 people in British Columbia 
uh, down to about 1,850 people. That's in BC Corrections, provincial facilities, so a decrease of about 350 people in custody. Um, There have, however, been some uh, problems, including uh, a serious outbreak at the Mission Institution, which is a federal penitentiary, where 131 inmates and staff have contracted uh, coronavirus. Uh, And the judge pointed out that prisons, much like um, uh, care homes and other uh, facilities, are at increased risk because everyone's living in close quarters, sharing meals and this sort of thing. Did you say 133 persons in one institution? Correct. That's more than all of Vancouver Island in the entire pandemic. That's a, that's remarkable. So I'm in no way diminishing the health risk here. In the federal mission institution, 133 inmates and staff have contracted the coronavirus. Wow. Um, so uh, obviously a very serious problem, at least in that institution. Yes. But in the case that I'm referring to, the judge did make clear that that doesn't equal a get-out-of-jail-free card, mm. right? Yes. Uh, although it's a serious consideration... Um, and it may tip the scales in some cases. Um, the judge pointed out that, you know, a person doesn't become less of a risk because of COVID-19. And so taking all of that into consideration and the things that I've just talked about, yes. the that I'm referring to, the judge said, look, this man with these, you know, dozens of convictions, uh, you know, fleeing from the police, and in the very case that was being considered, the man apparently took off from the police uh, and climbed onto a tractor and tried to uh, get away in that fashion uh, before being tracked down by a police dog, the judge concluded, look, I appreciate this is a risk, and I need to take into account COVID-19, but given that horrific record, the judge concluded it was simply necessary uh, to keep that man uh, in custody despite the risk, uh, because of the risk he would pose to the safety of the community uh, if he was let out again. So... COVID-19, certainly a consideration on bail, but the big considerations are those three that I mentioned. Yes. Are you going to turn up? Are you going to be a threat to the public? And do we need to keep you here to avoid uh, complete loss of confidence in the justice system with a, you know overwhelmingly strong uh, case for a serious charge, that kind of thing? Those are the principal things. COVID-19 is a factor, uh, but won't determine it. Um, and uh, I must say, one of the things which was... Uh, I think positive about all these decisions is that uh, is a rational analysis of all of these things, right? You yes. know, you actually see coming out in these decisions a, a risk assessment based on things like the actual statistical information about the number of people, the risk, the number of infections, um, uh, and uh, a, a reasoned, rational decision. So there you are. Not oh, a, a fail-free card, but uh, certainly a factor. And I'm glad to see that proportionality is being used. Of course, we can't balance interests unless we observe proportions of some degree. And you're right. The statistical number of people who are being infected, as well as the overall infection rate, would be material in some cases. That's right. I must say, that's one of the things that uh, I think is really positive about the justice system generally. Unlike some other aspects of uh, decision-making in the public sphere, um, there is a, a emphasis on the rational and evidence-based decision-making, right? Yes. Let's look at the numbers, let's look at the statistics, uh, let's hear arguments from both sides and have an impartial person make a, a decision based on that and explain why they've done it, right? Yes. You, would, you would hope that would be a decision-making model for more things, <laughs> uh, but it's uh, certainly in this context... Uh, 
uh, I think, a really positive uh, uh, way to approach things. Indeed. The Criminal Defense Advocacy Society calling for a limited reopening of the provincial court, and there is a May 20th letter. What's the story here? Yes. Now, this is an organization that uh, represents uh, uh, lawyers who do criminal defense work, uh, and this was a, a letter they wrote uh, yesterday uh, to a whole host of people, all the uh, senior administrative crown counsel, all of the administrative justice, uh, judges across the uh, province, uh, calling on uh, a reopening uh, of the provincial court uh, system to allow in-person appearances. And I think there are some really important uh, things that the uh, society has pointed out. Um, as we've talked about previously, there have been uh, various efforts to move things online, right? The Court of Appeal is now going uh, full guns blazing, doing all of its hearings by Zoom. Yes. Uh, and you'll see in uh, the Supreme Court, they've got, uh, they've apparently reached their capacity for video uh, and remote conferencing. And in provincial court, they've seen efforts to deal with things uh, by telephone, doing sentencing by phone, uh, using technology. They're moving to uh, MS Teams. But one of the, I think, really important things that the Criminal Defense Advocacy Society pointed out here um, is that many of the uh, criminal clients who, who they act for are people uh, who suffer from things like um, mental health issues, addictions, homelessness, and they have essentially no access to technology. Hmm. Uh, and the point that they are making in calling for uh, some uh, limited reopening of physical courtrooms is that individuals in those circumstances are effectively frozen out of the justice system because they have no capacity to uh, participate in it. Telling somebody who's living in a, you know, was living in a tent on Pandora Avenue that you should at, you know, 10.30 just hop on to MS Teams for your video court appearance is a pretty meaningless uh, proposal to them. Indeed. Uh, and the reality of what goes on, and people should know this, there, we have uh, three courts in British Columbia. We have the Provincial Court, B.C. Supreme Court, and the Court of Appeal. The Provincial Court deals with the overwhelming number of criminal cases. The Supreme Court deals with a smaller number of serious criminal matters, jury trials, murder trials, things that are quite serious. Uh -huh. But there's a really high volume of cases and people who are in the provincial court system. It's something like 95% of criminal cases are dealt with there. Interesting. And a very large percentage of those people are, as the uh, society here is describing, uh, most many of them, a large percentage are marginalized, mental health issues, drug addiction issues, homelessness. That is sort of what begets uh, a high volume of cases, all of the sort of things like, you know, people breaking into cars or breaking their conditions or not showing up when required or being caught drinking when they weren't allowed to, all of these kind of things. And there's a large volume of these things that have now just been put off uh, for uh, now it's going to be about three months. Uh, and the society points out that many of those people are subject to bail conditions that are restrictive uh, and they are just incapable uh, of uh, dealing with the system in a remote way. So the uh, advocacy society is calling on the courts to uh, take steps like plexiglass, social distancing in courts, uh, using staggered appearances, whatever is necessary to allow those individuals to uh, participate in the system uh, because technology just isn't going to work for a very large percentage of people who are charged with criminal offenses. Uh, and we can't simply keep putting these things off 
uh, month after month. There just needs to be a mechanism which they can actually use. I want to take our break here. Legally Speaking with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers continues in just a moment. We continue now with Legally Speaking, Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, giving us guidance through the latest news stories and legal affairs in the week. I see here the jurisdiction of Texas, Michael, experimenting with conducting trials by Zoom, also involving a jury. Yes, I thought this was uh, great <laughs> in terms of sort of a creative uh, attempt at this, at least. Um, in, in British Columbia, uh, jury trials are conducted in the Supreme Court, uh, and all of those have been canceled, at least up till uh, September the 7th, uh, on the basis that it just wouldn't be safe and there's just no practical way to have 12 strangers forced to sit in things like a jury box right next to each other or sitting back in a jury room having, you know, talking moistly to one another uh, for potentially days trying to sort a case out. It yes. just can't work. Um, I mean, there, there was sort of uh, talk about things like, you know, could we put the jury in the gallery and have, you know, three seats between them? But it just seems extremely challenging to make that system uh, work in the current context. So uh, Texas, uh, and I must say, jury trials are more common in the U.S. than in Canada. We have a fair number here, but they're more common there. Um, this was a, a case down there involving uh, hail damage to a building back in 2017, civil case, uh -huh. and the company that owned the building that got damaged by the hail was suing their insurance company, claiming that they didn't pay enough money for the hail damage. Uh, and so in Texas, they have a, an interesting uh, scheme for uh, juries that we don't have here, um, and one of the things that they allow for in Texas is this concept of a what they call a summary jury trial. And the idea there is that you would select a jury, uh, 12 people, uh, and then the jury would hear evidence uh, about the case, and then the jury would render a verdict, but because in this form of a summary jury trial, the verdict is non-binding. The jury would make a decision, but then the parties would be required to uh, attend mediation, and the jury's non-binding verdict would inform uh, the resolution of the case through mediation based on uh, what the uh, jury would uh, have concluded. So that's the scheme they have there. Huh, that but seems almost backwards. Here it's mediation and then trial. You're exactly right. So, you know, there it is, different place. Huh. But what do, you do in what do you do in the age of COVID-19? Well, uh, in Texas, they tried this. It's the first one I'm aware of, having the jury uh, be selected and then attend by Zoom. Uh, and so they sent out jury notices uh, to prospective jurors uh, who were uh, obliged to uh, uh, connect by Zoom. There's a, a report indicates that some people that received these things were concerned whether they were real or not, but indeed they were. Uh, and the judge uh, informed all of these people that, look, you're not at home during, during a jury duty you're at jury duty, you just happen to be at home. <laughs> uh, and so they all got connected on Zoom. There are pictures of this thing. It looks like, the, the, you know, those of us uh, old enough to remember, it looks like the Brady Bunch uh, uh, opening on steroids with all of these pictures of uh, various people. Yes, yes. Uh, and then so they started at it, uh, doing uh, initially jury selection, right? P you know, picking uh, who's going to be on the jury. Uh, a minor hiccup arose during that process where apparently... Uh, one of the prospective uh, jurors just wandered away <laughs> from the camera and took a telephone call, 
the judge was apparently telling the person to get back uh, to where they were required to be, but got no response since the uh, computer audio was hooked up to headphones that he was not wearing. So there's a problem. Oh, no. <laughs> what do you do when your juror just wanders off? Uh, I guess you, you send the bailiff to their house, or what do you do? I guess so. I don't know. <laughs> so they eventually got the jury selected, and that's, they're, they're, they're going for it. Uh, they, the judge came up with a, a mechanism whereby uh, if counsel needed to address something without the jury, there could be another sort of Zoom breakout room to get a, a ruling on something, and so there they are. Probably a good, you know, sort of test case to deal with it, Deal with this, uh, you know, given that the verdict at the end of the day isn't binding and it's a, a civil case over money for hail damage. Uh, you might be uh, pretty unhappy if you were sitting in prison for the rest of your life uh, with the uh, having been convicted of murder or something, wondering whether the juror was, you know, playing solitaire or wandering off to take phone calls rather than listening to the uh, the evidence. So certainly, a, you know, a, a good uh, low risk uh, fact pattern to try that out with. Um, and I must say, good for them. It uh, seems like a, a creative uh, approach. Um, I don't know whether we could actually make that work or. You know, if this thing went on long enough, uh, maybe you'd have to have some modified version of it with, uh, even if it couldn't be people at home with, um, you know, all those considerations, like wandering off to the phone. Yeah. Uh, maybe there could be some creative use of technology like that with people physically at the courthouse. Um, another concern that the uh, judge was addressing there is he told the jurors in Texas, um, there may be times when you have to have other people leave the um, leave the room, right? You, you couldn't have, or you wouldn't want to have, for example, the jury deliberations going on by Zoom, you know, with somebody's partner sitting in the background offering their commentary on it or listening to what was being discussed, yeah, right? That's yeah. a problem, right? Um, but it wouldn't be inconceivable to use this technology in a different way. Like, let's say you had uh, 12 private rooms at the courthouse, right? Perhaps you could have the uh, jurors listening to the uh, proceedings by Zoom or uh, uh, some equivalent, uh, you know, video technology, so they could hear the evidence. You could make sure that they weren't talking to their spouse or answering the phone or just leaving. Um, and maybe you could have some form of uh, deliberations uh, going on. So uh, great to see the creativity in Texas. We'll have to figure out how to stop people from wandering off to answer the phone or feed the dog or talk to their <laughs> spouse uh, and uh, uh, be actually within earshot of the judge. But uh, there it is, the first uh, jury trial by Zoom, uh, thanks to Texas. Oh, there we go. Now, as of June 8th, I'm reading here, B.C. Supreme Court planning to recommence criminal trials other than jury trials, though. So how does that work? Yes, so the, uh, the B.C. Supreme Court, as we talked about earlier, right, is one of the three levels of court in British Columbia. Uh, the categories of things that the B.C. Supreme Court deals with are different uh, from what would be dealt with in the provincial court, for example. Um, the provincial court would deal with things like uh, most criminal trials, 95% of them criminal cases. It would deal with small claims matters, traffic matters, uh, some family cases. Supreme Court would deal with larger financial claims, right, larger lawsuits, serious criminal cases where somebody's uh, um, going to Supreme Court. Those would include things like jury trials or uh, serious indictable offenses where somebody has chosen to have a trial in um, Supreme Court. 
and so what the Supreme Court looks like on a day-to-day basis is different from what the provincial court might look like. If on any given day you walked up to the courthouse in Victoria and walked into a criminal courtroom, uh, it would be often a hive of activity, right? You would, uh, in some remand courts, you could see dozens of people waiting around for their, you know, sentencing to occur or bail hearing to happen, this sort of thing. Um, whereas in um, Supreme Court, uh, because of the nature of what they do, smaller volume of cases, more serious things, almost everyone there would have counsel, although I guess perhaps not these days in family cases, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, they have concluded that it's going to be possible uh, for them to recommence uh, conducting trials as of June the 8th. Um, And, uh, you know, they've said this is going to be subject to review and assessment as to how it proceeds, but uh, that's, I think, good news, right? Sort of set a deadline and and give it a try. Um, I was up at the courthouse looking at some of the physical uh, layout uh, with an eye to these things last week. And, you know, there are challenging things that have to be done, right? There are concerns about things like making sure that there's uh, sufficient distance between people. You know, where do you put the accused box? Uh, How do you position the lawyers so they're not breathing down each other's neck? Or, uh, you know, where do you put the witness? Yeah. Uh, You know, oftentimes the witness box would be sitting right next to where the court clerk has to sit, and then the court clerk is sitting awfully close to the judge. And so... You know, the discussions were things like, you know, could we put the uh, witness in the jury box, for example, and that would get them further away, and doing other physical things like moving uh, the accused box and separating counsel table, counsel tables. And so uh, those efforts are underway. Um, there are some challenges and limitations on things like the availability of plexiglass and other barriers. Uh, and there are concerns about uh, having enough, uh, you know, masks and gloves for sheriffs and others who have to uh, potentially be closer uh, to people to maintain security. Yes. So real challenges there. But um, the Supreme Court uh, is going to uh, try to recommence uh, criminal trials in person, other than jury trials, uh, on June the 8th. Um, and there's lots of work underway uh, to make that happen in a safe fashion. Um, there are other practical things like, you know, can you have more than one person on an elevator? Uh, you know, where can people use the bathroom? Uh, what do you do to clean the, uh, you know, area that the witness is testifying from? Mm. Should you have people handling the Bible? There's a good one. That is a uh, good one. The, the Bible suggestion is that uh, people may be encouraged to affirm rather than swear or bring their own if you wish to swear your, an oath on a Bible rather than having everyone handle it. And then there'll have to be other uh, considerations about things like uh, documents. Yeah. Uh, you know, do you want to have somebody handing an exhibit to the witness to look at and then having them hand it to the clerk and hand it up to the judge and uh, passing the thing all around the courtroom? What do you do with that? Um, so all of those left to be worked out, right? Yeah. Uh, but, you know, the Supreme Court may be a good place to uh, try to make some of those things happen uh, because in criminal cases you're much more likely to have counsel um, it's going to be, it's generally a lower volume thing. You know, you don't have a courtroom where there are, you know, 50 people all waiting to, to yeah. deal with something. Usually it's going to be, you know, a serious case that's set for several days. And yes. That's what's being concentrated on. Uh, and that would be easier to manage uh, than, you know, a high volume of people all there for their uh, initial appearance or something. Michael so, Mulligan, we appreciate the benefit of your knowledge and insight as always. Out of time, have to run, but thank you so much. 
Thank you very much for having me. Have a uh, stay safe and have a good week. You too as well. We'll talk to you next week. Legally speaking, during the second half of our second hour every Thursday on CFAX 1070.